And I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn in your Old Testament to the book of Amos, continuing our series in the Minor Prophets. Well, it is Father's Day, and there are certain things that come to mind as we think about Father's Day. One thing that comes to my very interesting and somewhat strange mind as I think about being a dad and things I've done as a dad is the iconic blanket fort. Uh, no doubt everybody has at one time or another experienced or built blanket forts for their kids. I've done it for my kids, but full disclosure, I really think Charlene is more creative in blanket forts than I am. And yet it's our son Dave who takes the family championship. Uh, as Dave grew and came of age, it became very uh, aware that he was a very competent babysitter. In fact, there were several families that we knew that were close to us that, that the kids actually would request him to be their babysitter. Uh, and one of those families that's very close to us uh, told us that they think they know why their children requested Dave. On one evening when the parents were out and Dave was watching the three kids, he built an iconic blanket fort, an epic blanket fort. The family had a, a pretty large common room in their basement. And Dave, along with the help of the kids, turned the entire basement blanket fort. Now, I don't know where all the blankets came from, but he turned this entire basement into a blanket fort. I did not get to see it, but I understand it was epic. When, when the couple got home, the dad actually went in and began to explore the blanket fort, and at one point it was heard, hey, there's even a room in this thing. I mean, it was just, I caught, it was amazing. Ah. But here's the thing about blanket forts. They're just chairs and blankets and pillows. There's really no protection in a blanket fort. Eventually, the blankets need to be folded up and put away. The chairs need to be put back where they belong. And whatever room the blanket fort was in eventually becomes the room it was supposed to be. Have you ever thought about the proverbial blanket forts in your own life? Attitudes and things that promise a sense of security or belonging and significance, but they really don't provide all that they promise? If we are really honest with ourselves, we will wrestle at times of the fact that we hide under certain blanket forts in our life. See, our culture says there are certain things that we need. And when we really look at those things and, and look at them for what they are, we realize that they are, at best, blanket forts. Sometimes our culture tells us success. You need success. You need to be successful. How do you define success? What, what makes someone successful? And, and who determines that? 
And we often wonder why is it those who appear successful, those who seem to have that attain that celebrity status, why is it that they often reveal the emptiness of that status in so many ways? I mean, we only have to look as far as the painful and uh, sad drama that's been played out over the last few months in the courts and in the media with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard and realize that their success and their celebrity was at best a blanket for it that provided no true foundation for relationship. Sometimes it's our children. I once read a book uh, that I still have on my shelf by a man by the name of Dave Getz, and he called it uh, Death by Suburb. And he actually was actually someone who lived here in this area, and he had these toxins of the suburbs, things that if we buy into can really provide nothing for us. And one of them was that we look at our children as our symbol for immortality. You know, when I was a band parent, my son was in band, I, I wish I had a dollar for every time someone said, it's all about the kids, it's all for the kids, it's all about the kids. I could retire soon. But the fact is what we do is we make our children out to be the symbols of our success of parents. And so we try to push our children into things they may not want to go into and, and the perceived success of our children that might make me look good as a dad. It's just a blanket for it. There's no foundation there. Sometimes amassing wealth can be a blanket, a blanket for it. Sometimes hoarding our possessions can just be a blanket for it. Some of us hide behind a blanket fort of an attitude. Oh, I'm just so shy. Don't ask me to do anything. Or some of us, it's the blanket fort of anger or the blanket fort of arrogance. God wants us to know that these are false fortresses. And in the book of Amos, in chapter 3, the prophet is going to point out to the nation four false fortresses that they were hiding in. Fortresses that to them seemed right or secure or deserved. Fortresses that, they found, that God was going to show them those are merely a blanket fort. You're just hiding under a blanket fort. You see, because there's one reality and the reality is that when we are truly secure, it's when we cling to our God through Jesus Christ. The prophet is being used by God to call the people out again to come out of their false fortresses and to not refuse God anymore. Because he reminds them if they continue to refuse God, God's going to remove them from the fortresses and remove them from the land and those fortresses will be exposed as the false fortresses they are. Look with me at Amos chapter 3. First two verses, the prophet says, Hear the word, hear this word, people of Israel. The word of the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen. Of all the families of earth, therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. You only have I chosen. The people heard that. They had been told that throughout their lives. That you're the ones I chose. 
And what that did in their sinfulness is it developed this entitlement mentality. And entitlement mentality is a false fortress. God says, I chose you. That word chosen is not just a word that means I, I picked you, like, okay, we're going to choose up teams. I pick you, who do you pick? It's deeper than that. It's a word that means that I know you. I chose you and I know you. I used to tell my kids, and I borrowed this from a friend, I, I would tell my kids, I chose your mom. You were potluck, but I chose your mom. You know, and, and, and Charlene chose me. And so before, you know, and as we chose each other, we got to know each other. We spent time together. That's, that's the, this word here. God says, I, I have this relationship with you. I know you. I chose you. I brought you out of Egypt. We have this familiar relationship of all the families on earth. This is the one I chose. What an awesome privilege to be selected by the God of the universe to say, I chose you. But Israel had taken that privilege far beyond what God intended. You see, it's, it's, it's one thing to be chosen to be known, but it's another thing to use that relationship to think that somehow you are entitled. Someone who feels entitled believes that some way they are owed. Someone who feels entitled believes that somehow they deserve things. The people of God had falsely believed. The people of God in the northern kingdom of Israel had falsely believed due to their own arrogance and due to the false teaching of some of their leaders that since they were chosen by God, they automatically were entitled to all of the blessings of God and therefore they could live any way they wanted because God would always protect them because they were chosen because that's what entitlement does. When a person in any way, shape, or form gets the idea that now they get a free ride, they, they shirk their responsibilities. Israel was shirking their responsibility to worship God and God alone. Israel was shirking their responsibility to obey God by caring for the less fortunate. Israel was shirking their responsibility to trust God. They, 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 they said they trusted him, but they trusted him along with Baal and Ashtoreth and, and the golden calf and, the, and Dan and Beersheba and things like that. They trusted him that way. And as a result, God lets them know that they are walking in sin and they must be punished. They are entitled to nothing. They had great privileges but few rights when it comes to God's economy. Anytime you and I choose to live outside the parameters that God has set, it is sin, no matter how far outside we get. While it's true that the God-man Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins and mine, it's not true that his death in our place somehow earned us a ticket to live any way we can or we want. We are to live within the parameters that God has set. A few weeks ago, on a Sunday morning, Charlene and I went to the Spanish writing school in Vienna, Austria. We had tickets to see a performance of the world-famous 
Lipizzan stallions, these beautiful white stallions that could perform amazing uh, feats and do it in timing to beautiful music. I mean, we walked into this arena that was built in 1735, and, and our tickets earned us the privilege to go to the left, as the guy directed us, and to walk up steps, around and around and around, till we got to the upper balcony, which was where we could afford some seats. But once we got up to the upper balcony, we couldn't just sit anywhere. We had to walk around till we found seats with the numbers on the back that we sat there. But once we sat there, where there were restrictions. You see, I couldn't zip line down into the arena and hop on a horse and go, woohoo, let's go. I couldn't do that. I would be trespassing. I would have been arrested. You wouldn't have been happy with that. Uh, we did not have the privilege of taking pictures. We took a couple pictures of the arena before the thing started. But once the performance started, you could not take pictures. In fact, there were staff members wandering around the arena making sure nobody was taking pictures. The ticket gave us the privilege of simply watching and enjoying the artistry of these amazing animals and the connection between horse and rider. There were no uh, words spoken that we could hear but what we learned in reading the program is the rider would speak quietly to the horse and tell the horse what to do, and they worked together. And some of those riders had been training for well over 10 years, and they typically trained with the same horse day in and day out. It was pretty amazing. Israel, as God's chosen people, you and I, as God's adopted children through Jesus Christ, have the awesome privilege of being called children of God. We have the privilege of having a God upon whom we can call upon in times of need. We have the privilege of knowing that our sins are forgiven. We, in a sense, have a ticket to heaven, but that ticket does not entitle us to in any way violate God's standards, his boundaries are clear. A spiritual entitlement mentality is a false fortress. And God will take it away, like you and I might pull the blanket off a blanket fort. The prophet goes on, chapter 3, verse 3 through 8. Do two walk together unless they've agreed to do so? Does a lion roar in the thicket when it has no prey? Does it growl in its den when it's caught nothing? Does a bird swoop down to a trap on the ground when no bait is there? Does a trap spring up from the ground if it has not caught anything? When a trumpet sounds in the city, do not people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? The second false fortress that uh, the, the prophet puts up is simply this. Ignoring God's plan and purpose is a false fortress. We live in this funny world. We live in this world that's full of these really nutty ideas. 
In fact, it's interesting, there are two uniquely opposite ideas of why things happen in our world. One of those ideas is everything happens by chance. Everything happens by chance. Life is just this random series of events that happen that nobody has any control over. And the people that manage it best, the people that are most successful in life, are just better at responding to the events that randomly happen than anyone else. Those who buy into that philosophy, and, and I hear it in different ways. I was listening to someone the other day talking about a book they wrote, and, and the uh, interviewer said, why did you choose this area of the city to base your book on? And the person said, oh, I didn't choose the area. The area chose me. I'm thinking, that area, I don't, I don't get that. I know it's artsy, craftsy and all, but I, maybe that's it. I just don't get it. But those who believe that then can easily not take responsibility for their actions. I didn't do that. It, it did it to me. I didn't choose that. It chose me. Uh, I was just in the right place at the wrong time. It wasn't my fault. But then there's this other end of the spectrum. Everything happens for a reason. Now, often the people that say that and hold on to that really quote that when it's good. Oh, I got a check in the mail that I wasn't expecting. Well, I guess everything happens for a reason. Uh, and all, but you know what? Sometimes things do just happen. I tend to find myself kind of in the middle of those two. And I, I need to always keep in mind that, yes, I serve a God who's sovereign, but he's not a God who's so sovereign that he spoke to my heart today and told me what socks to wear. You know, he gives me the freedom to make choices, and therefore in that freedom, I am responsible for the choices that I make. And I need to keep that in mind. And to ignore God, to ignore the fact that God is at work, to ignore that God has a plan, to ignore that God does deal with us according to our sins, to ignore all of that is really a false fortress that says, I am the captain of my fate. I am in charge of my life. Nobody makes my decisions for me. I make all my own decisions. Amos uses some word pictures to show us cause and effect. And for most of these, the presumed answer is no. So he begins and he says, do two walk together unless they've agreed to? Now this isn't just two people just kind of out for a walk. It's the idea of journeying together, of traveling together. And two people don't take a journey together or travel together unless they've agreed to do it. And you definitely don't take a journey with someone that you count an enemy. He says, does a lion roar in the thicket when it has no prey? No, it doesn't. A lion doesn't roar before it's captured its prey until it wants its prey to come to it. But when a lion captures the prey and kills it and there's a, a, a blue new to eat or whatever, then it roars. Otherwise, there's nothing to roar about. It doesn't growl in its den when it's caught nothing. Birds don't get caught in traps where there's no bait for the traps. You've ever tried to do that? Set a little trap for a rabbit or something and put a box on a stick and put a little carrot in there and all and, and, and waiting for the rabbit to come in? It doesn't really work. But, but birds, that, if you don't put a carrot in there, the rabbit's not going to go in there. There's no reason to. 
The trap doesn't spring up from the ground if it hasn't caught anything. If nothing goes into the trap, the trap doesn't work. But then he says, when a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? Yes. The trumpet sounding in the city was the warning, the alarm. A couple Monday nights ago, a bunch of us were in here, we were doing worship team practice, and all of a sudden, and you know, at first I thought it was a little bit of tinnitus, but then I hear this, I went, oh, that's a tornado siren. Guys, we, we get into, you know, and we shut everything down. We moved into the hallway where it's the safest. There's no window. It's a low ceiling. After a little bit, it went away. Why did I do that? Because the, the siren said, this is an alert. This is a warning. Take shelter. In the city, in the ancient city, when you heard the trumpet sound, it was an enemy is coming. Something's happening. Take shelter. And, and, and typically, people would tremble. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? You see, in the ancient Near East, there was this belief. Because everybody, you know, there was the God of Israel, and everybody felt that Israel was weak because they only had one God. How can you have only one God? Who's your God over your crops? The God of heaven, Jehovah. Who's the God over the sun and the moon? It's God. He created them. That says that can't be. Who's your God of war? It's God Jehovah. You don't want to mess with him. And so when an enemy came and they overran a city, one thing they would do is they would overrun the temple of the city and take all of the items of worship to show that our God is bigger than your God. And, and God says to the nation, you need to understand there's a cause and effect relationship to everything. There's a sovereign God who can step back and allow things to happen. It stands to reason then, as he finishes up here in verses 7 and 8, surely the Lord does nothing without revealing his plans to the prophet. In other words, God doesn't just act randomly. He reveals to the prophets, this is what's going to happen. You need to speak truth into the lives of the people. God warns his people, so it, it makes sense that the people should listen. The lion has roared. This goes back to the very beginning of chapter 1, verse 2, that warning. God has spoken. Amos will speak on God's behalf. The lion of God roars. It's up to us to respond to the message. God is a God of purpose. God is a God who carries out his plan. And how does that relate to you and me? It's simply this. God would say later on through Jesus, no one comes to the Father but through the Son. You see, there is only one way to God. I've said this so many times. There are many, many, many ways to Jesus, but there's only one way to God the Father, and that's through Jesus. And the enemy would deceive us into thinking and has done a good job in deceiving people into thinking there are many paths to God. Oh, that sounds so good. That's so user-friendly. That's so up-to-date. That's so gentle. It's so diverse. It's so tolerant. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere because God is loving. There are many paths to God. And it's interesting, we don't apply that kind of faulty reasoning to any other area of our life. How would it sound if your dentist said, you know, there are many paths to dental hygiene. 
So don't brush, don't floss if you don't feel like it. If it doesn't work for you, it's okay. There are many paths to dental hygiene. Those are old-fashioned ideas that if you want to choose them, that's good. How would, it, how would it work if someone said, if your CPA said, you know, there are many paths to pay, paying your taxes. The IRS is just one way, and it's kind of outdated and clunky and old-fashioned. I mean, you know, there are many paths. I can show you different ways to pay your taxes. I happen to be one who likes mushrooms. What if I just said, you know what, there are many mushrooms out in the forest. Why should I limit myself to the ones in the grocery store. That, that's just so limiting, you know. I want to go out and I want to pick all my own mushrooms and I want to just have the joy. Well, I don't really know a poisonous mushroom from a non-poisonous one. So, you know, and, and yet we say, oh, Pastor Scott, that's not safe. The lion has roared. Do you and I listen? He goes on, beginning in verse 9. Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and the fortresses of Egypt. Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who store up in their fortresses what they have plundered and looted. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun your land, pull down your strongholds, and plunder your fortresses. The third false fortress is this. Hoarding possessions is a false fortress. Amos, as it were, now calls on two witnesses to attest to the actions and observe the actions of the northern kingdom of Israel. He mentions the fortresses of Ashdod. Ashdod was the capital uh, and the main, one of the main cities of the Philistines. The Philistines, if you know your Bible history, they were always just this burr in the saddle of, all, of, of Israel. David fought, Saul fought the Philistines. David fought the Philistines. You know, the Philistines were just always there. And then he talks about the fortresses of Egypt. Egypt was the place that, that Israel was enslaved in for over 400 years, 430 years to be exact. And so Egypt is always this place of, the, the image of God's deliverance. And so the, the Philistines, and we saw last week, the Philistines would overrun a city and then they would take the inhabitants and they would sell them to the Edomites. And so, you know, look at these people who did these things. Egypt slaved them for 430 years, made them make bricks and build possibly the pyramids. We don't know for sure. And he says, I want you guys to come out, metaphorically, I want you to assemble on the mountains of Samaria. And I want you to look and see what they do. I want you to see their oppression. In other words, the way they oppress their own people is even worse than what you did. And I want you to observe that. And look at verse 10. Speaking of his own people, God says, They do not know how to do right. Wow. They don't, God says of his own people, they don't even know how to do right. Well, what do they do? What's so bad? They've st they store up in their fortresses what they've plundered and looted. Now, you've got to remember something. We've talked about this before. On the throne was a man by the name of Jeroboam II. 
And at that point in history, things were good for Israel. There were no enemies. There was, there were, there was nobody. They weren't going out to war against anybody. So if there's no enemy, how do you plunder and loot? Well, there, we'll see it as we keep going on. They were plundering and looting the poor in their own community. In other words, they were plundering and looting their own people. The poor were being looted by the rich, and the rich were not practicing any sort of trickle-down economics. Somehow that money wasn't being invested and reinvested in the community. No, they were bringing that and storing that up in their fortresses. They were holding it for themselves. They were keeping it and, and spending it on themselves. And the worst part about that is not only were they opposed, oppressing their own countrymen, they were living in direct opposition to God's law to be generous to the poor. You may not have ever robbed anyone. You may have never struck a deal with a partner and cheated somebody out of money or their position or their place in the company. You may have never beat up the kid in class to get his lunch money. But do you hoard stuff? And I'm not talking about reasonable savings. Everybody ought to have savings for an emergency. That, that's, that's reasonable. I'm talking about hoarding. I'm talking about holding on to possessions and not letting them go. I'm talking about being so emotionally tied to a possession that you can't for any reason let go of it. I'm talking about not being open-handed with what God has given me. We, we, all the time, and it's a cliche, I get it, but so often, Charlene and I remind ourselves, you just can't outgive God. Uh, one quick story on that. Many, many years ago, we were brand new here. We were starting to kind of think about kind of what's now become almost an expected tradition that after our congregational meetings, we would have pie and coffee. One of the first times we did that, Charlene said, I'm going to make all the pies. And she worked in our, and she, I think she made like eight pies for whatever event this was. And, you know, part of her was feeling like, yeah, I am the pastor's wife, you know, feeling pretty good about that. And then we went off and just, and she took those pies, we put, brought them over here to the church, went, I think, to watch our son play a baseball game in 103 degree heat. Uh, when we came home, you know, and, and at the time, you think about, there's, there's a little bit of cost to making eight or nine pies. It's not, it's not cheap. When we came home, we walked into the kitchen, and there in our kitchen were two or three Huge. These are the big industrial contractor size garbage bags full of bagels. We had a friend who would go to places that, and take their day old bread and take it to food pantries. And she had more than the food pantries could take, so she decided we'll give them to us. We had bagels for months. And <coughs> These aren't your little lenders bagels that you get. These were the, the bagel store bagels, you know, the big ones. And there was bagel, there were cinnamon bagels and jalapeno bagels and cheese bagels and 
bagels on bagel. We were taking bagels to friends in Indiana when we go visit. We were, we were giving bagels away. And when Charlene walked in and she saw it, she just laughed. Because she thought she had done this and felt in her heart she had done this magnanimous thing to bake nine pies. And God said, nine pies, nothing. Look at the bagels. You can't outgive God. And so to hoard stuff, to hang on to it, is not being open-handed. Caring more about what it costs than actually serving someone is a way of hoarding. Making idols out of a car or a collection or an heirloom, refusing to downsize, it's kind of a hoarding thing. There's an old Broadway musical I, I really felt old when I realized it first came out in 1964. It's almost 60 years old. It, it, there was a movie made of it in 1969. It's called Hello, Dolly. And in that movie, there are two opposing forces that clash. It's a romantic comedy. Dolly Levi has this attitude. Money is like manure. It should be spread around, causing young things to grow. Now, she sort of has this thing for Horace Vandegelder, who owns a kind of a general store, and he was one that wanted to hold on to his money because he was a sensible man. The last musical number in that production, Dolly Sings, is called So Long, Deary. And it's her telling Horace she's leaving. That because they can't get together, she's moving on. And there's one line in that song that I just love. And it's this. And, and if I kind of go into sort of a little bit of an accent, I'm no Barbara Streisand. I mean, you could tell by looking at me. But anyway, she says, So on those cold winter nights, Horace, you can snuggle up to your cash register. It's a bit lumpy, but it rings. That's the attitude, you know, that's how silly it is to hold on to stuff. Because the best we get from it is it rings. Amos is saying to the people, you don't know how to do right. Your moral compass has been totally warped. You've lost any sense of what God wants. And what God wants is so simple. You have at your disposal, as it were, the whole compendium of the Psalms. They knew the Psalms. They knew the prayers of David. They knew the hymns. And I think they should have known that there was a Psalm that expresses God's heart on this very thing. It's Psalm 37, verses 25 and 26. David writes, I was young. And now I'm old, and I say, amen, Dave. Amen, brother. Yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. Why haven't you seen that, psalmist? They are always generous and lend freely. Their children will be blessed. Hoarding possessions is a fortress, God says, I will tear down, verse 11. This is what the sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun your land, pull down your strongholds, and plunder your fortresses. The final false fortress here is comfort. Comfort is a false fortress. Verses 12 through 15. This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd rescues from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites living in Samaria be rescued with only 
the head of a bed or one piece and, and a piece of fabric from a couch. Hear this and testify against the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. Amos points to more, one more area and he uses these strange figures of speech to make his point. The word rescue might not be the best translation here. Uh, it's like the sheep is already dead. The lion has already taken the sheep. All the wool and the meat are gone. But hey, I was able to snag from the lion a little bit of the sheep's ear or a couple of leg bones. That might be something. Uh, or I'm, I'm able just to recover something. And the, the shepherd recovers what he can to show the owner of the sheep that he didn't steal the sheep. That's what's going on there. In other words, due to their continual sin, Samaria, representing the northern kingdom of Israel, will be like a sheep attacked by a lion. And the same ones who are right now enjoying all the comforts of life on their soft beds and their times of ease, their summer homes and their winter homes, who enjoy their mansions, says it's all going to crumble. They, were, they, were, they believed that their comfort their winter homes, their summer homes, their ivory, their mansions, all of that. See, we're blessed by God. We got stuff. We're blessed by God. We got things. We, we have two homes. We're blessed by God. And God says it's all deception. You're deceiving yourselves into thinking that you're entitled to the comfort. And so you found your comfort and your security in your stuff and you're going to the altar and it's false worship. Notice he says there, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. The removal of the horn of the altar was the removal of any means of atonement. You see, what they would do in part of the worship is to put blood on the horns of the altar to symbolize forgiveness. But a false altar to a false God does not save you. And God says, I'm going to remove it. You're not even going to be able to go to your false gods for forgiveness. So what does all of this have to do with you and me today? Plenty. Take time. Think about the fortresses you've built in your life. What's the foundation of them? Fortresses that may be seen in attitudes or possessions, fortresses that we, we build thinking that we're protecting ourselves or those around us, fortresses that come out being demands of children or family or others. God wants us to know that nothing, nothing save a relationship with him on the terms that he has set will really offer lasting security. Don't hear me saying that you shouldn't have nice things. I'm not saying that. But make sure those nice things are held up to God in an open hand. Don't say, hear me saying you shouldn't celebrate your fathers today and that you shouldn't love your kids and give the best to your kids and try to give them the best education. That's awesome. Hold those children up in an open hand. Hold everything to God in an open hand. He gives it to you for your use, for your management, but it's all His. God wants us to know that relationship with him is what matters. 
Today is a good day to think about those upon whom you are depending. And maybe today you're, you're thinking about your dad or your memory of your dad. But remember this, all dads, even the good ones right here in my hearing, all dads, we're all human. We all have flaws. None of us live forever. And the fact is, the best dad, the godliest dad says, don't put your hope in me. Put your hope in Jesus. The best dad says of the apostle, like the apostle Paul did, follow me as I follow Christ. The fact is, putting our faith in anything other than the finished work of Jesus Christ, believing that he's the only path to relationship with God, putting our faith in anything but that is putting our faith in a blanket fort. And blanket forts eventually get put away. May we always put our faith in God through Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the straight words of the prophet, Amos, who spoke truth. Thank you for the opportunity to listen and to learn and to grow. We give all of this to you today, Lord, and we ask that you would help us to be who you want us to be today. In Jesus' name, amen.